Well, uh, we'll we'll set the context in this way. Again, we're going to focus on verses 34 to 36 of John. So if you haven't of John chapter three, so if you haven't turned there yet, you can. It's always good to follow along when we're studying the Bible. Um, and, and we'll set the context for our study like this. Uh, in, in our human condition, we are aware of the fact that we're lacking. Uh, we know what it is to have need and not be able to personally provide for that need. And we also know what it is to have need and not be able to even resource outside of ourselves things that would provide for that need either. Whether we like to admit it or not, if we take a moment for honest reflection, we are quite aware that we live with a regular and a profound sense of our own weakness. Uh, We live with the profound effects of our own weakness. We live with our inability and insufficiency. We live with the fact that we cannot be, uh, nor can we create what we must have in order to fully and finally be satisfied and enjoy true life. We acknowledge that we're lacking, and we bear out the proof of that lacking in the experience of our lives. Uh, So Robert Frost, the poet, he draws attention to to some of the, the gloominess of this in a poem that he has entitled, A Question. It's just a four-line poem, but it goes like this. A voice said, look me in the stars and tell me truly, men of earth, if all the soul and body scars were not too much to pay for birth. Let me just say that again. So a voice said, look me in the stars and truly tell me, men of earth, if all the soul and body scars we're not too much to pay for birth. In other words, uh, Robert Frost is making the point, does all this stuff that we go through with all the effects upon us, with, with all the weaknesses of our body and soul that it, that it represents, does it all make it worth it? That's, that's Robert Frost's question. And, and there are times when we can wonder at that very question. We go through life and we face challenges that are overwhelming to us and we have the soul and body scars to prove it and we wonder, is, is this really it? Is this life really worth all the trouble? Where, where can I look to find a supply of help and hope that can truly provide for me as I go through the experiences of this life. And so we look in many places as we, as we come to feel our need for these things. We look for help, we look for hope in different places, uh, desiring that something, that some person maybe, that some structure will provide for us the renewing and, and life-giving relief that we long for. Uh, So we look for some reality that will fulfill our need and bring purpose and meaning and and genuine lasting life, a a kind of life that reaches beyond and maybe even back to heal the scars that we bear, a kind of life that makes it all worth it. We long for that and we search for that hope. And and as as it goes, actually, as we study John's gospel, John introduces us to different individuals who have searched for that hope. Um, So, for example, in chapter 3, we met a man named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a man who placed his hope in knowledge. And Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, and he is determined to understand things completely. And we can identify with that posture of heart. If I can just know enough, the infusion of life that I long for will then come at that point. If my knowledge can just be complete, if I can just understand things thoroughly enough. Uh, And then as we go on in John's gospel into chapter 4, we meet the woman at the well. And the woman at the well, uh, she's placed her hope in relationships. Uh, She's had five husbands and is currently living with a man who's not her husband. Maybe life will infuse my condition if I just have the right intimate relationship. And then from there, we meet a disabled man in John chapter 5 who'd put his hope in fellow humanity. Only fellow humanity has failed him. There's no one who will help him. 
And then there's the crowd in John chapter 6 who has their appetite satisfied with food. Maybe physical satisfaction will be the source of life uh, that, I, that I ultimately need. And so as we're reading in John's gospel, we can start to identify with all of these different kinds of places where we find individuals looking for fulfillment and help and hope in the life that they live. If I could just have uh, enough knowledge or if I could just have the right relationship or, or if, if others would stop letting me down or if I could somehow reach a, a level of physical satisfaction and wholeness and, and well-being, then instead of a life dominated by soul and body scars, I would have the life I long for. And John, our gospel writer, is coming along and saying to us, as we're considering these things, John's saying to us, we actually need to have a little talk. Uh, because there are many different things around us that we and others may look to for the supply of life that we really need. Uh, but, John says, what you long for won't be found in any of those places. Instead, he's saying to us, let me tell you about Jesus. And so all through, <clears throat> all through chapters 2 and 3, John has been showing us how Jesus is the superior one who is capable of fulfilling the need we have for true life. So starting all the way back in chapter 2, we've been reminding ourselves of this. We've seen how, how Jesus was the better provider at the wedding feast. And then Jesus is the better provider for pure worship at the temple. He's the better truth revealer as he helps the acclaimed teacher Nicodemus. Jesus is, is the one who provides better relief from the judgment of God than Moses. Uh, Jesus is the highest expression of God's love for the world as he's come to save us in John 3.16. So all through our studies in John 2 and 3, John, John is driving home the point that while we might look around uh, to bring meaning and fulfillment and renewal and hope to life, Jesus actually is the supreme one who has the hope that we need. And in our three verses this morning, in verses 34 to 36 of chapter 3, this is punctuated further as John shows us in three different ways how with Jesus we actually find the supreme supply. Now, last week we looked at Jesus' supreme position in the beginning of this final section of comment from John, and then we looked at Jesus' supreme witness, and now we come into this uh, brief three-verse comment section on Jesus' supreme supply. Uh, John's making it clear that in Jesus, we actually have the supremacy of resources uh, that ultimately won't leave us lacking, but leave us in a place of eternal and lasting hope. And we need that hope. I, I don't have life in me enough to make it. You don't have life in you enough to make it. Uh, the scars, uh, soul and body that we have, they are very real and they can run very deep. The weakness is evident in, in daily life. It's felt. Uh, left to ourselves, we know we don't have what we need, but John is telling us Jesus does. He has enough. And, and John calls us through these verses then to once again be looking to Christ, be looking to Jesus, and find this hope that's sourced in his supremacy and sufficiency. So this morning we're going to work our way through uh, verses 34 to 36, and we'll do so in, in three sections if it's helpful for you to know ahead of time. First of all, we're going to see the supremacy of Jesus' supply uh, in verse 34 with regard to the unmeasured spirit. And then we're going to see the supremacy of Jesus' supply with regard to his sovereign authority in verse 35. And then we'll see the supremacy of his supply in verse 36 with regard to eternal life that he provides. So unmeasured spirit, sovereign authority, and an eternal life. So we'll start in verse 34, where John speaks to the uh, supremacy of Jesus' supply as it relates to the unmeasured spirit. Unmeasured spirit. In fact, I'll just read verse 34 again for us so it's fresh in our minds. Uh, we're told here that for the one 
whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. Since he gives the Spirit without measure. Uh, now we ended our studies last week in verses 32 and 33 by looking at the supremacy of Jesus' witness. And there's part of that truth that flows into our verses this morning as we have a reference to the one whom God sends, also speaking God's words, uh, which highlights what we talked about last time, and that in the coming of Jesus, we have the supreme authoritative witness of God himself. Uh, when Jesus speaks, God speaks. There's uniqueness in the identity of Jesus attached to the powerful word of Jesus. Uh, and connected to the nature of, of the perfection of Jesus' ministry then is the fact that God the Father has given Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure. Uh, so, so as we think about what John is saying here, we, have, we recognize that we have another reference to the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit in these verses. Uh, and this is actually the third reference to the Holy Spirit so far in John's Gospel. Already in, in John's Gospel, we've been told how John the Baptist witnessed the Spirit descending upon Jesus at his baptism. That was John 1 verse 32, where, where when Jesus was baptized, John testifies that he saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus out of heaven like a dove and resting on Jesus. And then in John 3, we've already had another reference to the Holy Spirit and that Jesus has been speaking further to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in relationship to the new birth. Uh, so Jesus has told Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. And it is actually the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, to come into our hearts and make us alive to the truth of who God is, who Christ is, what it is to turn to Him and believe in Him. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit who comes in and regenerates us, gives our heart that new birth that we need so that instead of being dead in our, in our transgressions and sins, instead we're made alive to the realities of what's offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we respond in obedience and belief. So the Spirit of God is the, is the, is the divine agent of regeneration generation in our hearts. He comes to us and he helps us uh, see the realities of the gospel. We're born again through his ministry. And now in our section, we have this third reference to the Holy Spirit. And this time we're being told that Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry was given the Spirit without measure. Now, um, some, very few, but some will raise a grammatical question in this verse about exactly who gives and receives the Spirit here. So is it God who gives the Spirit to Jesus, or is it Jesus who gives the Spirit? If we're reading this in the original Greek text, we, we could see there's a little bit of ambiguity with the way the, 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 the structure of the grammar is here, except that as, as almost all scholarship will agree, grammatically, ultimately, we have to see that this is a reference to God the Father giving and, and Jesus, God the Son, receiving. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, theologically, we have to be careful, too, because while Jesus does give us the Spirit, uh, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, he, he, he doesn't do so without measure. We have to just be careful theologically. Instead, we read in places like Ephesians 4 that we have uh, what from Christ? We have a measure. It's not without measure. But we actually have a measure of the Spirit's gifting from Christ. It's not measureless, but it's actually measured out. Um, here, however, the Spirit is given without measure. And, and so as we work this out, it becomes clear that the reference is to God the Father giving God the Holy Spirit with no limitation 
to Jesus in the context of his earthly ministry. Uh, so, so in our own lives, we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit as we follow Jesus. And, and Paul can even say things like, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so so we, can, we can cultivate a life that's walking in the way of righteousness as God the Holy Spirit helps us and equips us and, and all of those kinds of things. But while we can be filled with the Spirit, to use New Testament language, that there's something unique about Jesus, God the Son, as He's given the, the limitlessness of the, the Holy Spirit for His ministry. Uh, and, and on this point, we have to remember that while fully divine, uh, Jesus engaged in His ministry on earth in full humanity. Right? And in His healing, and in His teaching, and in His displays of power and knowledge and, and signs, and in His perseverance under temptation, and all of these things, He was living according to the power of the Holy Spirit actively present in His life. Just as we also do to, to a certain degree, though the Lord Jesus, being also God, knew, knew the fellowship, the intimate fellowship, the perfect help, the extraordinary measure of, of, of God the Holy Spirit active in his own life without any kind of boundary. So he was given the full measure of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and, that, and that matters for us to know. And, and that's on two levels. First of all, we do have to recognize the full humanity in which Jesus ministered as he, as he came to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life, and offered that death on the cross. Jesus ministered with no uh, restriction of his own fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit was the, the one who came and empowered him for the tasks ahead of him. He ministered from a place of total sinless perfection. And so it's no surprise to us that he also enjoyed the total, pure, un, un, unhindered fellowship of God the Holy Spirit as he, as he conducted himself in his life and ministry. So that's punctuated here. Uh, but we also need to think through the implications of what John is telling us as we consider what's coming in John's gospel as Jesus is going to be speaking further about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because as we get further on in John's gospel, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then again in chapter 20, John is, uh, John is going to be sharing with us how Jesus speaks of, of his uh, promise to his disciples, which then flows on to us as well, where as he returns to his Father, as he returns to heaven, he promises to ask his Father, who will then send the Holy Spirit to us as our helper in Jesus' name. John 14 speaks like that. Or in John 16, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will proceed from the Father, who's going to come and be your helper. So something that John is preparing us for here is not only to understand the measurelessness with which Christ exercises his own ministry empowered by God the Holy Spirit, which among other things is a sign of divine approval. He is the righteous one whom God has promised us. So we not only have that aspect, but we also have in front of us this Christ who is the one who is sufficient in his own supply to provide for the promise that, he's been, that he'll make to, to his followers. Here's the one who comes and says, I will give you the spirit as your helper, as your counselor, as the one who will convict the world of sin, righteousness and the justice to, and the judgment to come. The one who will come along and bring us forward in strength of truth instead of falling prey to deceit and lies that can enter into our hearts from the world around us. So as we look to Jesus and his supply of the Holy Spirit here, we're not only encouraged recognizing the, the sign of divine approval that is upon Jesus' life and, and, and the power that this represents for the perfection of ministry that he will execute in his earthly life and ministry, 
But we also recognize that it is in the name of Jesus that God the Father will send the Holy Spirit. It is at the request of Jesus that God the Father will send the Holy Spirit to us. In fact, Christ himself speaks of sending the Spirit to us as his disciples in order to help us live the life he saved us to live. And he can do that. We can trust him to do that because of what's told us right here. Jesus is the one who has the preeminent supply of God the Holy Spirit. So he speaks and he requests and he makes promises from the place of his own earthly experience and position, which is something that can be very encouraging to us because we recognize, as we were saying from the beginning, that we tend toward frailty and we tend toward darkness at times. We tend toward deception. We tend toward the decreation opposite of what life really is. And as we are thankful for the ministry of the Spirit that Jesus will, will procure for us and then commission to come and be our helper. As we think about this, we recognize that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live lives that are contrary to deception, lives that are contrary to darkness, lives that are contrary to decreation. And instead, we live lives sourced in truth, sourced in persevering strength, sourced in the reality that God is making us new because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we don't function from a place of independence, but we also don't function from a place of insufficiency because now God, the Holy Spirit, has come and been our helper, as is evidenced through Jesus's promise and sourced in the fact that he's displayed this in his own earthly, earthly life and ministry. So Jesus is the one who has the ministry, who has the Holy Spirit with with no limitation. And from his resources, he gives us the help we need in order to walk in the way he calls us to live, which is just something we need to be regularly mindful of. We can make requests like, Lord Jesus, I'm weary. And you have the full supply of the Holy Spirit of God, and you've promised to give help. So please grant me the help of the Holy Spirit so that I can press on well and faithfully. We can pray that way to Jesus because he's the one who's procured the supreme supply of help for us. He has the spirit without measure. So on the one hand, this speaks to Jesus' own dependence in his earthly ministry. And this speaks to Jesus' full supply of provision for us as we respond to his ministry in a life of faith. He has the spirit without measure. And then we go on here and see that John also makes it clear that the supremacy of Jesus' supply includes his sovereign authority. Uh, Jesus has the supreme supply of sovereign authority, which is there in verse 35. So if you look at that, we read there that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He's given all things into His hands. Um, now, now, this is really something to, to see as we, as we think this out. Uh, first of all, we, we have to note that God the Father has given all things into the hands of God the Son. Uh, so the metaphor there is something that's common enough to us, something being given into his hands is plain. Uh, we're being told that God the Father, the, the planner of creation and redemption, he has granted to God the Son, Jesus, the, the totality of eternal cosmic dominion. Right? All things have been given into Jesus' hands. Right? So, so time, right? angels, demons, weather formations, human rulers, animal migration, mountains, tumbling seas, rising, all things are given to Christ who has then supreme authority over everything. Sovereign, unmitigated authority over the entirety of all things uh, is, is granted to Christ. Now, now, we don't see the fullest expression of that yet, 
The fullest expression of that will come on the final day of Christ's return when every knee will bow and acknowledge his sovereign lordship over the cosmos and, and, and he will right all wrongs and make all things new. That day has not arrived yet, but the authority has been given. So from, from waterfalls to galaxies, from rulers of the world to the oppressed and downtrodden, from spiritual forces in the heavenly realms to creatures in the deepest unexplored recesses of the ocean, all authority over all things belongs to Jesus. And we should note that that authority is something that is permanent. Uh, the tense of the Greek verb translated has given, he has given all things into his hands. Uh, that, that Greek, uh, the, the tense of the Greek verb there, it communicates a kind of permanence. Uh, so, so the supreme lordship over the known universe and, and recesses of the eternal realms yet unseen, the, the supreme lordship over all of these things have been, has been given to Jesus, and that authority is something that is uh, supremely unending. There's no term limit on the sovereign position that Jesus Christ occupies uh, over, over everything. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the start and the finish. He's, he's the, the ruler over all kingdoms in total supremacy, world without end. Amen. And this authority that Jesus possesses is not rooted, we should note this, it's not rooted in the kinds of things that, that structures of authority around us are so often rooted in. So often around us, high positions of authority are gained through manipulation, aren't they? Right? Jesus does not have all authority in the cosmos because of his ability to manipulate. Around us, high positions of authority are gained by pushing past others in line. Jesus doesn't have all authority in the cosmos because of his ability to usurp others. Around us, high positions of authority are gained often through false presentations of qualifications. Jesus does not have all authority in the cosmos because he's presented himself untruthfully. Now, verse 35 makes it very clear. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, over the sea and all that is in them. Jesus possesses supreme authority over all things for this reason. The Father loves him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So the cosmic position of grandeur so, so high, which belongs to Jesus Christ alone, is sourced in the love of God the Father for him. So Jesus is in the position he's in, not because of manipulation or selfish assumption or false qualification. Jesus is in the position he's in because of divine affection. The, the love of God that sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior, to rescue us from the penalty of sin and death, John 3.16. That same love of God is what set Jesus in the highest place overall. And, and while we could apply this in endless ways, the truth of Jesus' supreme supply of authority uh, could, could be applied in so many ways far and wide. That there, there is one particular way that we can apply it this morning, and it's the way that Christ himself applied this truth on the eve of his crucifixion. In John chapter 13, we have Jesus with his disciples sharing the Last Supper. And in chapter 13, verse 2, we're told that at this time, the devil entered Judas. And, and the betrayal of Christ was coming. So the torment of the cross is very imminent. And, and in that context, Jesus, as, as the torment of that unspeakably anguishing hour was descending upon him, John tells us, among other things, that Jesus 
knowing that the Father had given everything into his hands, got up and washed his disciples' feet. So, so in a context of looming agony and guaranteed torments of the cross, the degrees of which you know, we can't even fathom, when the betrayal was at hand, Jesus didn't fade away and shirk the grim reality of his ministry, but he persevered knowing that the Lord had given him sovereign authority over everything. So Jesus persevered into darkness. No, no being will ever know because of the certainty of his position of dominion as granted by God. All things are at his disposal, which, if we recall, he actually brings up in Matthew 26, doesn't he? When he says, don't you know that I could call, in the context of his arrest, don't you know that I could call upon my father uh, here and now and he would supply me with 12 legions of angels? You know, you forget that I command the hosts of, of heaven's armies? All things are mine. Right? Jesus knows all things are at his disposal. No higher authority can usurp him. No human or spiritual power can overcome him. Jesus persevered all the way through death on a cross because of the certainty of supply of sovereign authority given to him by God the Father. He will not be overcome because nobody is stronger. So we can make the same application of this truth ourselves. Why, why do we keep going? Why do we keep enduring difficulty in the Christian life when hard days are on the horizon? Why do we persevere in renewed faithfulness amid temptation even though we feel our weakness and fear? Why do we stay on course even though it may seem that, that those things contrary to Jesus are so appealing and promise so much acceptance from those around us? Why do we press on? Well, we press on for this reason. Jesus Christ has been given and will eternally remain in the highest position of sovereign authority over the entirety of all that ever was, is, and will be. Our Savior, Master, Redeemer, and Friend is above every name that is named. So, so the murderous schemes of the religious leaders couldn't undo Jesus' preeminence, and he knew that in the Passion narrative. The temptations I face and you face, they may seem powerful. In fact, they may seem overwhelmingly powerful in our lives. But they do not have sovereign authority over my life. Jesus does. Right? The discouragements and feelings of hopelessness, they can seem extremely powerful. They can be extremely powerful. But they do not have sovereign authority over my life. Jesus does. Right? To use Robert Frost's words again, all the soul and body scars, they may seem to have an extraordinary grip and pull and power but they are nothing compared to the universal, sovereign, cosmic lordship of Jesus to whom you belong if you're trusting in him. So everything from my scars to the devil and his schemes is crushed under the redemption victory of Jesus' life-giving cross and all things are subjected to him who now sits enthroned on heaven's eternal praises. Nothing is stronger. We can know strong expressions of hopelessness. We can know powerful expressions of those things that would draw us away down and far from life. But none of those things have this kind of power. We, we can know Jesus who stands as the victorious master of the universe and who subjugates all those death-beckoning elements to his life-securing power. And as he does, he brings us into the security of his everlasting rest. Under the authority of Christ, no more tears. So under the authority of Christ, true and lasting life is secured for us. And actually, it's this life 
that John wants to speak about next, if you look at verse 36. So, so we move from Jesus' supply of the immeasurable spirit to Jesus' supply of sovereign authority. Now, finally, Jesus' supply of eternal life. 36, I'll read verse 36 again. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So here John speaks to us about two contrasting yet enduring realities. On the one hand, there is life eternal. Right? So life uh, that extends beyond the fixed boundaries of our death. That There is life that goes on without end, life eternal. That points to the reality of heaven and then the new creation, all things being made new and Jesus' return. So, so there's life eternal in the presence of Christ, uh, that resurrection life that is beyond the reach of death, life eternal. And that life eternal is set here in contrast with wrath remaining. So, so again, there are these two contrasting, enduring realities. Number one, life through Jesus that goes on. Or number two, the experience of the wrath of God which goes on. Now, uh, the subject of the wrath of God is one that is heavy. And there's a sense in which it can offend what we feel are our proper sensibilities. You know, we can think to ourselves, I don't like the idea of a God who would extend wrath. Uh, a God who would, who would dole out unending punishment. I much prefer a God who's only kind. But listen to how one scholar uh, by the name of Leon Morris, listen to how he speaks about this. He makes this comment. The wrath of God is a concept that is uncongenial. Isn't that nice? That is uncongenial to many modern students. And various devices are adopted to soften the expression or explain it away. But, he says... This cannot be done without detracting from God's moral character. So you see, when, when we consider the wrath of God, we're not speaking, as, as D.A. Carson puts it, we're not speaking about some impersonal principle of retribution, but instead we're speaking about, as he says, the personal response of a holy God who comes to his own world, sadly fallen into rebellion, and finds few who want anything to do with it. You see, the wrath of God, the truth that God will bring about the just and eternal condition of punishment for all who determine to remain set against Him and reject the Lord Jesus, that this is, this is not a matter of mere temperamental anger or retribution flowing from unchecked emotion on the part of God. This is a matter of holy justice. So says Milne, God is not endlessly passive about the presence of evil in the world or the injury it does to His great glory. To thumb our nose at God is to be in a position of treason against Him. He made us. He gives us the breath that's in our lungs. The rain falls and the sun shines as an expression of His love for the world. And He sent His only Son, Jesus, into the world to take the justice of His wrath for our sins in our place if we'll trust in Him. His own Son bleeds so that we can escape His just wrath. This is not a God who delights in the condemnation of humanity. This is a God who's slow to anger, who's patient, but He's also a God who will not be mocked. Psalm 2 makes very clear right? His wrath can be quickly kindled. And, and so for those who refuse the Lordship of Jesus, there, there is only the justice of God's wrath which remains. 
But of course, for those who will turn to Jesus, what do we find? Well, we find the one who has the full supply of life. That's John's main driving point. We need to be looking to Jesus. There's the full supply of life there. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and then offered that life upon a cross, taking the sins of all who will believe in him upon himself and satisfying the just wrath of God. And so that's why we sing the songs we do. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Jesus has the supply of eternal life so much so that even right here, John actually uses the present tense form of the verb to have just to make sure we get it. To believe in Jesus is not to have eternal life sometime off in the future. No, it's, it's way bigger than that. To believe in Jesus is to possess that life that extends beyond death into the heavenly new creation presence of Christ for all eternity. To believe in Jesus is to have that as your possession right now. Interestingly, he uses the future tense to speak about the wrath of God remaining. You see the window that John is leaving open for us. There is life right now to come if you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to the future, there is going to be a remaining wrath there for those who will reject him. But right now, life is open to us. This is the call of John the Evangelist. Right? So, so, so to reject Jesus, to reject him as the only source of life, is not to be left in the, in the misty middle ground where things will be more or less okay. No, it's to be in a different kind of unending position. Not, not an unending position of salvation life from God, but the unending position of being under the just wrath of God. So G.I. Packer, he speaks to, to our crucial need to be clear on doctrines such as this when he says that if we, if we aren't clear on these things, we'll fail to comprehend not only the sinfulness of sin, but also the graciousness of grace. It is an extraordinary truth that in Christ we find the supply of life that overwhelms the just judgment we deserve. The supremacy and fullness of what Jesus supplies is the only place we can find this kind of redemption relief. And the bigness of that supply can only be understood rightly in light of the dire reality of the alternative. And so we consider, we consider this carefully. To reject Jesus is not to sit in a neutral relationship concerning time and eternity. To reject Jesus is to occupy the side of eternity that rings with the unending dirge of God's just and eternal judgment. Unending in the place of ceaseless weeping and gnashing of deaf teeth as Jesus himself teaches. Right? To reject Jesus is to live in the throes of the eternal embrace of anti-life. But to embrace Jesus. To say, Lord Jesus, I do trust in you. I do yield you to you as the one who, who has the supply of life to overcome my condemning sin. I know your cross is sufficient. I know your grace is sufficient. So I will trust in you. Please save me. For the one who comes to Jesus, life that reaches beyond the grave into an eternity of joy, that life begins right now. Because it belongs to you right now. Because Jesus has the supply of that life and he grants it to all who will believe in him. So we ask John's question again and we keep asking it am i believing in jesus remember this is john's priority for us am i believing in him am i trusting in the lord jesus that he is the one with the supreme supply the limitless spirit he's the one who has sovereign authority and he is the one who has eternal life so the one who believes in the son has eternal life
and we look to him. We look to him with hearts turned toward him with this redeeming theme. And we pray for God's help to continue to look for him faithfully, recognizing that in the midst of our frailty, the final word in our life is not hopelessness. But in the midst of our frailty, the final word in our life is eternal hope through Jesus Christ. He gives us the strength and he preserves us to the end. And he has the authority to do exactly what he promises because all things have been given to him. And so we're thankful to God for his word, uh, which is, encourages us in these truths. Let's pray. So, Father, we do ask that we would be encouraged in this and that we look to Jesus in his superior position. Uh, there's no one higher. There's no hope greater. Uh, in fact, there's no other ultimate hope to be found. But. Uh, but what is offered through Christ. Would we, would we be believing in him today? Would you renew us in this truth and encourage us and sustain us by it? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.